So 1 Peter chapter 4. Again, our passage this morning draws to a close this section of 1 Peter that began in chapter 2, verse 11. Since that point, Peter has been discussing how Christians living as exiles in the world are to live countercultural lives as a means of bearing witness to their true king and their, uh, his coming kingdom, and ultimately bearing witness to the hope, uh, in the hope that those around us in the world would see our good deeds and would glorify God. That's what he says in chapter 2, verse 12, sort of the thesis statement for this whole section. And as we've gone, we've seen different ways in which Christians are called to live differently than the world around them. But we've also seen that this countercultural living would also inevitably produce unjust suffering among Christians. Suffering, in many respects, simply for being Christians and living as Christians live. And so Peter says we must prepare ourselves amid such suffering and the temptation that it brings to, to fall back into old patterns of living that might, that might uh, alleviate that suffering, so we're being maligned for being Christians. We must prepare ourselves in the midst of such suffering to continue to persevere, living no longer for human passions but for the will of God, as Peter says in chapter 4, verse 2. And so we saw last week in 1 Peter 4, 1 to 6, how the world suppressing the truth of their ultimate accountability to God just goes on living for such human passions, the way of life that Christians are to reject, even if by doing so it brings suffering on them. And that was the negative end of what Peter said in Verse 2, you can no longer live for human passions, just being led about by your desires. In the passage this morning, Peter goes the other direction, goes to the, the positive side of what he said in verse 2. In contrast to the world, Christians are to live for the will of God. Verses 1 to 6 showed what living for God's will doesn't look like, but what does it look like? If we've clearly understood what we aren't supposed to do, then what are we supposed to do? What we find here is Peter saying that as exiles in the world, to live for the will of God means three things, to know the time, to keep your head, and to continue your love. Know the time, keep your head, and continue your love. These instructions provide a, a direct contrast to the way that the world lives and, and sort of a, a capstone to what Peter has been discussing in this section of how Christians are to live counterculturally as a witness to the world. These things that the church is called to are things that do not characterize the world around us and set us apart as God's people. There's a lot to see here, so we're going to just get right into the text, starting in verse 7, Peter begins sort of his concluding statement in this section of the letter by saying, the end of all things is at hand. And this truth forms the basis for the instructions he's going to give in the rest of the passage. The end of all things is at hand, therefore, do this. 
But what does he mean by saying the end of all things is at hand? And why should knowing this truth produce the actions that follow it? When he talks about the end being at hand, he's not really saying anything about the expected timing of the Lord's return. He's not saying that he thought Jesus was going to come back in his lifetime. After all, if you think back to the Gospel of John, we read that Jesus had already told Peter by what kind of death he was going to glorify God. Peter knew that he was going to go be with the Lord before the Lord came back. When the New Testament says things like the end of all things is at hand, it's not thinking about uh, the time in terms of calendar dates, but more so epochs or ages. Say the end of all things is at hand is to say that we are living in the final stage of God's redemptive plan. In the Bible, the Last days or the end times are not terms that only describe the last few months or years immediately before the return of Christ. Rather, they're terms that describe everything between Christ's first coming and his second coming. In fact, Peter uses the term earlier when he says that Christ, as in chapter 1, Christ was made manifest in the last times for your sake, that is, Christ's first coming, his being revealed in the flesh, inaugurated this period the Bible calls the last days or the end. So if somebody asks you, do you think we're living in the last days, the biblical thing to say is yes. And we have been for 2,000 years, and we will be for another 2,000 years if the Lord tarries. We're in the closing act of God's redemptive drama that began back in Genesis. The next thing to happen is the end, the culmination of God's plan in the eternal reign of the Lord Jesus Christ in a new heavens and a new earth. For Peter to say the end of all things is at hand is to remind Christians what time it is, so to speak. Unlike the world, we are to know the time, where we are in the flow of God's redemptive plan and its approaching culmination and to live in light of it. Now, we might hear a statement like this, the end of all things is at hand, and imagine Peter morosely walking around Asia Minor with a sandwich board on and a bullhorn shouting, the end is near. When our response to such a statement may be sort of tepid, and suspicious. Yes, we know things like this are in the Bible. We believe that there will be an end of the world, that Christ will return, that there will be a final judgment and a new heavens and a new earth. But beyond signing off on those doctrinal points, we don't really think all that much about it. Maybe it's because we've seen an unhealthy obsession with the end times, plotting out in meticulous and absurd specificity every event that will happen and how what's happening now is certainly a specific fulfillment of biblical prophecy. I mean, this time we know for sure who the Antichrist is. Just like everybody has known for sure who the Antichrist is for the last 2,000 years. Nobody seems to have gotten it right yet. That should give us pause. We're wary because we don't want to be lumped in with the chart makers and date setters and doomsday predictors and sign watchers and sandwich board wearers. 
Moreover, we've seen how such an obsession has sadly and unnecessarily divided churches and denominations because of disagreements about minor details that are anything but clear in the Scriptures. And while we believe that what the Bible teaches is true, that there will be an end, that Christ will return to judge the living and the dead, we just, we just don't see how it has any immediate bearing on our own lives here and now. Sort of like the way we might think about the probability that someday humanity will have colonies on Mars. Yeah, maybe it's true, but it's pretty far off in the distance, and it really doesn't have any effect on the way I live right now, unless, of course, you invest in Elon Musk's companies. But if that's what we think, if we think it doesn't really have any bearing on our lives here and now, it may be because our thinking has actually, maybe unknown, unbeknownst to us, been more shaped by the world than by the Bible. It's hard to read the New Testament and come away with the idea that the return of Christ and final judgment and the redemption and renewal of all creation is a minor or secondary matter or irrelevant for our lives. For something supposedly so irrelevant, both Jesus and the apostles sure talk about it a lot. And contrary to what we might think, they expect that it is going to have a significant effect on the way that we live here and now. It's very different from the way that the world thinks. Those who are of the world don't pay attention to the time. They distinctly do not acknowledge nor live in light of this reality of coming judgment. There's no thought to an eternal future, there's only the present. What's the result? What's well, the logical outworking of that mindset? And Paul said it this way in 1 Corinthians 15, if the dead are not raised, that is, if there's no resurrection, if there's no eternal life, if there's no final judgment, if all we have is here and now, then let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. It's the logical conclusion of not living in light of the time. Deliberately overlooking, suppressing that truth Peter reminded his readers of in verse 5, that they will give an account to him who is judge of the living and the dead. The world lives in intoxicated indulgence of its own passions and desires. And it's in contrast to this mindset that Peter begins in verse 7 by saying the end of all things is at hand. We know as Christians, as Paul says in Acts 17, that God has fixed a day on which He will judge the world in righteousness by one man, that is Jesus, whom He has appointed. And of this, of this reality of coming judgment, judgment by Jesus the judge, He has given us assurance by raising Him from the dead. It's interesting if you go into the book of Acts and you look at how the apostles begin their preaching of the gospel, they start with the resurrection and that Jesus is the one appointed to judge. What Paul calls in Acts 17, the times of ignorance are over and in light of that, God commands all people everywhere now to repent. Because we know this truth, there's a certain way of life that should characterize us. We are not those who are asleep to God's design. We're not content to just keep hitting the snooze button for no regard what time it is. 
The world continues to live in the so-called time of ignorance without reference to the end and their accountability to God. Their clocks are just blinking 12. There's no urgency, no understanding that despite what the clock says, the time continues to push forward to its appointed end. And they live like it. The Christians, Peter say, are those who know the time. We know, again, as Paul says in Romans 13, that the night is far gone. The day is at hand, and that is to shape how we live. So despite what you might have seen or thought in the past, eschatology, the, the study, what we believe about last things or the end times, eschatology is not about arguing, it's about ethics. That's to say, our understanding of the end and where we are in relation to it should shape the way we live in the present, both in relation to the world and in relation to one another. And that's what Peter goes on to argue in the rest of the passage. How do you live at the end of the world? Peter says, because you know the time, keep your head and continue your love. Peter's first instruction in in light of the time, in light of where we are in the end, is to keep your head. Because we know the time, Christians are therefore, verse 7, to be self-controlled and sober-minded. Again, a direct contrast to the behavior of the world, which Peter has just said passes its days inebriated by sin. The commands to be self-controlled and sober-minded are very closely related. In fact, they're sort of mutually explanatory. It's one of those times where you look up a word and you find the other word in the definition, and then you look up that word and you find the first word in the definition of that word. I think that's very helpful. Uh, This is probably what's called a hendiadis, which is just a grammar nerd way of saying two words connected by and that together express a single idea. Something like nice and warm or rough and tough. So instead of trying to parse out the differences between these two terms, we we take them together as a single idea. And I think the idea here is captured well by this idiom, keep your head. To keep your head means to stay calm, measured, to think clearly despite stress or difficulty. Unlike those who are intoxicated by the world and its mind and soul-numbing allures, Christians are to be those who keep their heads. They are sober. They aren't intoxicated, by which I mean far more than just not being drunk. Those who are sober-minded are not controlled by their passions and desires. They're not deluded or inattentive. Their judgment is not impaired by a love for the world. They're not stumbling around in a stupor or sleepwalking through life. They know what time it is. They know their responsibility in light of the time, and that leads them to be awake and alert, to be able to think clearly like a soldier who is on watch needs to make sure that he is well-rested and in full control of all his faculties if he is to protect himself and his fellows. When we don't know what time it is, we are more prone to let our guard down, just sort of coast along be dominated by our desires, our senses are dulled. We aren't on the alert. We're easily taken in like a drowsy watchman. We make ourselves vulnerable to attack. 
thinking that the time of our exile is more like us going on vacation than going downrange. I wonder if Peter here is remembering the night of Jesus' betrayal when Jesus told him and James and John to watch and pray with him because his hour was at hand. The appointed time of his redempted suffering had come. And yet each time Jesus returned, he found the disciples asleep, clearly not yet understanding what time it is. Maybe Peter remembers the words Jesus spoke directly to him. Simon, are you sleeping? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter temptation. The spirit is indeed willing, but the flesh is weak. Perhaps thinking of this, Peter here is saying, stay alert. Don't doze off. Don't start thinking that what God has promised is not going to happen. Don't get too comfortable here. Don't be taken in by the soothing siren song of the world. Don't let yourself be tranquilized by the desires of sin. Don't allow yourself to be lulled into a false sense of security. Don't become complacent. You know the time. Keep your head. We need to stay awake and alert to be self-controlled and sober-minded. And Peter says this is to be done for the sake of your prayers. Here again, it might be that Peter is thinking of Jesus' own command to him in the Garden of Gethsemane. Watch, stay awake, stay alert, and pray. A Christian who's lulled into complacency and compromised by the world, who just sort of sleepwalks through life, whose guard is down, who loses his inhibitions because they are intoxicated by the world, the flesh, and the devil, such a Christian will not pray. I can tell you from experience that when I go through life in a state of drowsy distraction, prayer is the first thing that gets neglected. I suspect I'm not the only one here who struggles with that. We are to be devoted to prayer, prayer for perseverance in faith, prayer for our own growth in godliness, prayer for strength to endure trials, prayer for those who persecute us, prayer that our neighbors would turn and trust Jesus. Like Jesus commanded Peter and James and John in the garden, we need to pray that we will not enter temptation because the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Once heard it said that to not pray daily, lead me not into temptation, is in effect to say that you think you are untemptable or that you yourself are strong enough to resist any temptation that comes your way. And that's exactly what a groggy, clouded mind intoxicated by the world is likely to think, and so not be given to such prayer. Inebriated and impaired judgment tends to make us overconfident in our own abilities. We need to think of ourselves with sober judgment, which in turn should show us how poor and needy we are and drive us to prayer that God would keep us from temptation and deliver us from the evil one, that we would not start setting our hope in the world and its treasures, but continue to set our hope fully on the grace that will be brought to us at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So we need to keep our heads, but this surely can be hard. We're not going to get any help from the world. It's sort of like we're on a long road trip away from home, driving late at night across what seems like an endless horizon, 
And the journey is long and we're tired. And like the disciples in Gethsemane, we're called to watch and pray, to stay on the road. And the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak and we are prone to doze off. We need to be awake and alert, but we can't do it alone. If we try, we'll end up in a ditch or worse. To live this way, we need to pray for the strength that God provides, a significant aspect of which comes through the ministry of our fellow exiles, the church. We need one another. So Peter says, because you know the time, you must not only keep your head, but you must also continue your love. Look at verse 8. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly. Here again, Peter renews a command that he's already given his readers back in chapter 1. Love one another earnestly from a pure heart. He tells them, again, not because he's just being redundant or because he forgot to edit his letter before he sent it. He says it again because we need to hear it. Marginalized and maligned by the world, tempted by the flesh, assaulted by the devil, we are prone to become isolated, easy targets. So we're instructed to continue to love one another earnestly, to have a a focused commitment to and persevere in it. This is both a way that God has provided support for us in the midst of our own trials and temptations, as well as a way in which Christians bear witness to the world as they see our good deeds, not just our good deeds in relation to them, but our good deeds in relation to one another. Biblical love, as we've said before, is actively willing and seeking the good of another for their benefit. And here the expressions of love that Peter particularly underlines are forgiveness, hospitality, and service. We keep loving one another earnestly by a commitment to forgive one another, welcome one another, and serve one another. First, forgiving one another. Verse 7, verse 8 rather, keep loving one another earnestly, Peter says, since love covers a multitude of sins. The idea that love covers sins requires some explanation. Peter does does not mean here that love atones for sins. Uh, that, That is what we mean when we say something like the blood of Jesus covers our sins and atones for them, but that's not the idea here. Neither our love for God nor our love for others atones for our sins or anyone else's. Only Jesus can do that. Some might read love covers a multitude of sins and think that it means love covers up or ignores sins, that sweeps them under the rug and pretends like they didn't happen. Maybe you've heard this verse used that way in your own experience. I'm I'm afraid it's been abused in this way more often than we might think, using love, quote-unquote love, to grant asylum to unrepentant wickedness. That's not what Peter means here, or means anywhere for that matter. 
Because sweeping sin under the rug and just pretending like it didn't happen is not what God does. God doesn't cover up our sins as a way of letting us just get away with them. He does not ignore our sins and just go whistling along as if we didn't do anything. If that were the case, He would not be a just judge. You say, well, John, the Bible does say that God will remember our sins no more. But when He says that, it does not mean that God... Uh, is offering us a kind of cheap grace in which he just pretends like we never sinned. He just sort of looks the other way and does not hold us to account. That's not what God's grace is. God doesn't just forget like we did something. He does something far better and far more costly. He doesn't just forget that we sinned as if he who is omniscient could forget anything. Rather, because we are united to Christ by faith, He counts our sins as being punished in Christ, and He counts Christ's perfect record of righteousness as belonging to us. And in doing so, He declares and deems us to be righteous in His sight. And so for God to remember our sins no more is the same as saying that He does not count our sins against us. He does not deal with us according to our sins. And if you are trusting in Jesus alone for your salvation, your sins have been fully and forever forgiven through Christ, and they can and will no longer be used against you in judgment. Your case has been dismissed. And that helps us get to the core of what Peter means here by love covers a multitude of sins. The love that we are called to show others forgives them for their sins against us. That is, it chooses to no longer count those sins against them. It's not pretending like sin didn't happen or that it wasn't somehow harmful. It's not ignoring sin and its effects. It's not excusing or justifying sin. It's choosing to give up your prerogative to punish others for their sins against you and committing to not use that sin as evidence against them in the future. Giving up judgment for yourself and entrusting judgment to God. It's much the same as what we read Paul say in 1 Corinthians 13, that love is not irritable or resentful. It doesn't count up wrongdoing. Love, real love, is not easily angered and it doesn't keep score. This is just a reflection of God's own love for us. He does not ignore our sin, but He is patient, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And if we are united to Jesus by faith, He does not deal with us according to our sins. It sounds great. We know it's much, much harder in practice. It's entirely natural, that is, entirely according to our nature to hold grudges and to seek vengeance, but to forgive others freely for their trespasses against you, it's evidence that you belong not to the kingdom of darkness, but to the kingdom of His beloved Son, that you yourself have been freely forgiven of your trespasses. Forgiveness is a core mark of God's people. We are forgiven 
and forgiving, a forgiven people and a forgiving people. Our forgiveness of one another as Christians is therefore a powerful witness to the gospel of the forgiveness of sins through Christ. On the other hand, if we hold grudges, nurse bitterness, seek vengeance for ourselves, withhold forgiveness, what gospel does that preach? If that's what God's people are like, what does that communicate to the world what our God is like? And what does it say about the state of our own souls? We're to love one another earnestly by being committed to forgive one another, for love covers a multitude of sins. And second, Peter says we are to love one another by, verse 9, showing hospitality to one another without grumbling. It's another way in which Christians show themselves to be a distinct countercultural society by showing hospitality to one another, or as we might say, by welcoming one another as Jesus Christ has welcomed you. In one respect, this is a very practical instruction. Christians in, in Peter's day where he's writing to them are being increasingly ostracized by society. They would not have found themselves welcome into the homes of their neighbors who certainly had no desire to love their enemies. So it was especially important for Christians to show hospitality to one another. But hospitality extends beyond just having people into your home and giving them something to eat, though that certainly could be an expression of it. Hospitality is more than that. Uh, the Greek word for hospitality is a combination of the words love and stranger. And while we always want to be careful about trying to define words by the words that uh, are combined to make them, as you know, butterfly does not mean what those two words separated mean. And yet this does tell us something about the idea behind it. To be hospitable is to show love to others, love to strangers often in very practical ways, things like food and drink and a place to stay, but more than that. Hospitality is not just an action, it's a disposition of welcoming and receiving others for Christ's sake. So it's not just a question about showing hospitality in actions, but being a hospitable person. Maybe that's why he adds that we are to do it without grumbling. You can have people into your home and feed them, you can act hospitably and all the while not be very hospitable at all. It's more than an action. It's a character trait. And apparently it's important enough as a Christ-like virtue that it is specifically listed in the qualifications for elders. Elders must be hospitable. Of course, we can't get away with just saying that it's up to the elders to be hospitable and everybody else is off the hook. This command is for all Christians. Do you consider the needs of others above your own? Are you willing to share with them though, uh, though they have nothing to give you? And in fact, without thinking of what they could give in return. Do you do it without grumbling, without complaining about how hard it is for you? That's the one that gets me. Do you give freely to others without grumbling about what you have to do for them, but celebrating what you get to do for them? And does your hospitality go beyond providing physically, but also spiritually for others? Are you willing to refresh not just the bodies of the saints through food and drink, but their hearts as well? As Paul says to Philemon, he says, you have often refreshed the hearts of the saint through fellowship and prayer and mutual upbuilding in the faith. 
Hospitality is love that gives to others without thought to what they could or would get from them. It is a love that is not mercenary. In this way, showing hospitality to one another is another way in which we live counterculturally and bear witness to the gospel. Deep down, even the world's hospitality is really all about how is this going to benefit me? How is this going to make me look? But we do it for the sake of others, for their benefit, not because of what they can give us. But we welcome them, we, we share with them, and we show hospitality to them for Christ's sake. We welcome one another as Christ welcomed us. And to extend this, we could also say that another way in which we practice hospitality is by serving one another with the spiritual gifts that God has given us. Verse 10, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. According to His design and purpose, God has given each Christian spiritual gifts that they are to steward and employ to build up the whole church. Paul writes about this a lot in 1 Corinthians, and, and Peter here says that it's God's varied grace. Not everybody has the same gifts, the same mix of gifts. Not everybody has the same purpose in the church, but everybody does have a purpose in the church to use their gifts to build up the body. And so Peter says one of the ways that we live a countercultural life of love is by using what we have been given to serve others rather than ourselves, which apparently was an issue. This is much of what Paul wrote about in 1 Corinthians, people using their gifts to exalt themselves rather than build up the body. If you're a Christian, God has gifted you specifically and placed you into the church, not just the church, but this church, in order to build up the body of Christ. This is one of the core ways that we express our love for one another, how we demonstrate our commitment to one another, how we show hospitality to one another, how we seek to build one another up by serving with the varied gifts that God has given us. Peter does not get into a long list of what the gifts are here. There's other places like that in Scripture, but he does break them down into two big categories, speaking gifts and serving gifts. Look at verse 11. Whoever speaks, let them do so as one who speaks the oracles of God. Whoever serves, let them do so as the one who serves by the strength that God supplies. All spiritual gifts fall into one of these two categories, gifts that build up the church through words or gifts that build up the church through deeds. Paul spends quite a bit of time, as I said, in 1 Corinthians discussing how these gifts could indeed be poorly stewarded and used to serve ourselves, but they are given for the purpose of edifying the body and expressing love to one another, which is why there's this, this chapter in the middle of Paul's discussion of spiritual gifts in 1 Corinthians all about love. So what are your spiritual gifts? Maybe you've never thought about that, and if that's so, I'd love to talk to you more about what they might be. If you have an idea of the spiritual gifts God has given you, then are you using them to serve the church? And by that, I don't necessarily mean what roles are you volunteering for or what organizational hole are you filling. We certainly do have opportunities to serve and different ministry needs to meet here, and, but I'm thinking of something more than that. 
You don't need an official position or role to exercise your spiritual gifts to build up the church. In fact, I'd say quite a bit of the work of building up the church actually occurs in those more informal contexts as we teach and encourage and care for and serve one another. Using your spiritual gifts to build others up in the faith is not radical, not something you need to be appointed for. It's just normal Christianity. It's part of how we all seek to be discipling one another towards Christ-likeness. So how are you taking advantages of the opportunities that God has put in front of you to serve one another with your gifts? How are you stewarding those gifts God has given you? Are you being a faithful steward? Do you need to start putting them to work for the sake of your brothers and sisters here? The mindset of the world, which we are too easily prone to adopt, is more likely to think about how we can be served rather than how we can serve. We're more prone to think about what we consume rather than what we contribute. The church doesn't have a bunch of bench players. It's not a spectator sport. Everyone needs to be on the field. So what does that look like for you? You're not here and you're not gifted the way you are by accident. God said He has so composed the body, made up as it is of different parts with different roles and different gifts, that all the members may have the same care for one another. And that means we need you. We need more than just your presence. We need the gifts that by God's design you bring to the body uniquely to build up the spiritual maturity and health of God's people. And this, again, is a way that we bear witness to the gospel before the world. We serve one another rather than serving ourselves, and in so doing, we become a living parable of our Lord who came not to be served, but to serve. Peter closes with a reminder that as we love one another, and especially as we serve with the gifts that God has given, we do so so that in everything God might be glorified through Jesus Christ certainly happens because our gifts come from God and are empowered by God so that when we exercise them in love for one another, God is glorified. But it's also our prayer that our way of life, living for the will of God, knowing the time, keeping our head, continuing our love, leads to God's glory by having the effect that Peter envisioned back in chapter 2. It's our prayer that as we live this way, those who speak against us as evildoers will see our good deeds, that they will ask about the hope that we have in Christ, and that hearing the gospel, they would receive and rest upon Him alone for salvation as He is freely offered to them, and so would themselves be brought to glorify God on the day of visitation because they too have crossed from death to life. That in the end, they would glorify God, not because they observe His love and grace demonstrated through our lives, but because they too experience His redeeming love and grace in their own lives. Let's pray. Father, we thank You that You have called us to be Your people out of darkness into light. We pray that we might be a community that does bear witness to the gospel, one that, that does increasingly look like Jesus, that makes those who might otherwise be hostile to us curious about this hope we have, what causes us to live this way. Help us to be faithful stewards of what you've given us, that in all things, 
God might be glorified through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.